welcome back to the program. We all intuitively know that the greatest gift we can give today is the gift of time. We just don't have enough. The pressures and stresses of work, parenthood, family, and personal commitments pulls us in multiple directions all the time. The technology that was supposed to free us up and make us more efficient has become a kind of parolee ankle bracelet tying us down even more. The societal expectations of what it means to be a good mother or to lean in at work add yet another layer to the demand. Public policy doesn't necessarily help, and sometimes it appears that the whole operating system of work and play was designed for a mid-20th century world when we are having to operate in the 21st century. The result is that oftentimes we just, not unlike our overstressed computers, just time out. But how did we get here, and what can we do about it? That's the lens that Washington Post reporter Bridget Schulte looks through in her new book, Overwhelmed. Bridget Schulte is a staff writer for the Washington Post, a fellow at the New America Foundation, and the author of Overwhelmed, Work, Love, and Play When No One Has the Time. Bridget, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you here. In many ways, as we look at the way our our time has been eroded and the demands that are made on us today, it's a little bit like the proverbial frog in the boiling water. It happened gradually over time, and suddenly one day we woke up and and realized it was too late. Well, first of all, it's not too late, but you're absolutely right that we've been like this frog in the water. These changes have been uh, slow and subtle and imperceptible in some ways. But where we are right now uh, is really unsustainable. Health Canada has done a huge study of work-life stress, and, and uh, at 10 years ago, they had said the way we're living and working is unsustainable, and it's costing billions and billions of dollars, not just in lost work, productivity, absenteeism, presenteeism, when you're just sort of a butt in the chair, you're so burned out, but it's really affecting our health. And one of the things that I found in my book that I found most distressing was uh, the Yale Stress Center is actually looking at what all of this stress and feeling of overwhelm is doing to our brains, and it's literally shrinking them. Uh, but there is hopeful stuff. I did find hopeful stuff on the other side of that. But I say that because it's so important. We have dismissed these issues for so long as sort of mommy issues or lifestyle issues, and they're really not. They're very human issues, particularly when you layer technology over on it. That, that it's sort of distracting everybody's attention and fragmenting everybody's time. Is part of the stress that we work so hard to achieve that balance, that proverbial work-life balance, and to what extent is that fantasy notion of achieving that balance really feeding into the stress? Well, you know, work-life balance, I know we all use that term, and it's so elusive. What does Mm -hmm. that mean? I think it means different things to different people. And sometimes you can paint an ideal, and your expectations are so high uh, that that it's really unsustainable or unattainable, I should say. So I think what's so important to remember is to look at the sort of the larger water that we're swimming in. Our work hours are, uh, in in the United States, we work among the most hours of any advanced economy, and we work among the most extreme hours. And the only people who are working more are those in South Korea and Japan, where they've actually invented a word for dying at your desk from overwork. So that's a new phenomenon. That started in the 1980s. Uh, and that was accompanied by also increasing job insecurity, this feeling that 
you know, you don't know what the future is going to hold. And so I think we need to understand that uh, that a lot of this is economically driven. It's our workplaces, our workplace expectations, that that's kind of the center where a lot of this, uh, this stress and overwhelm and overwork comes from. How much of it comes from some of the broader societal changes that are going on? And you talk about a lot of them. The change in in expectations within marriages, the change in gender roles, the very change in the nature of work today in a knowledge-based economy. As all these changes, as we're going through this period when all these changes are taking place, talk about the extent to which those changes are inherently making the situation more unstable and more difficult to come to grips with. Well, you raise a really good point. We are at a very confusing time. When you think about these changing gender roles, we've only been at this for a few decades. For the first time in centuries, if not millennia, or the Pleistocene era, really, (laughs) So it's a very confusing time. Who should do what? Whose role is what? Uh, What is okay to do in the public sphere, in the private sphere? So, uh, you know, the fact that women are still doing twice the housework and child care and really overloading them, uh, that's something that we still need to look at. But I don't think it's where we're ending. I think that this is a a tough and confusing time that over time hopefully we'll work through. Uh, But when you talk about work, one of the things that, that I came across in my research was this notion of contaminated time. And it affects everyone. Uh, this notion that we, keep, we have so many pressures coming at us from work and from, uh, from the responsibilities that we have at home that we're trying to keep it all in our minds. And it's like our minds become so filled and polluted with all the stuff that we've got to keep track of that it keeps us from really feeling fully alive in the moment. You're always in your head and you're worried about 10,000 different things. Um, you know, and that's an important thing to recognize that a lot of us are experiencing that. And the way to uncontaminate your time, you know, is to sort of disrupt this cycle of, of busyness and overwork and sort of take a breath and figure out what is, you know, you have to understand that we need these larger changes in society, you know, and yet change does come slowly understand where we are, disrupt that cycle and figure out at this moment what's important to you. Change your own to-do list to put those things that are important at the top rather than all of the millions and millions of things that we put on it. Is there a degree to which, and I know we've talked about the technology in many ways has become a leash more than it's become something that frees us up the way it was was sold to us at one point, but is there a way that technology can be an aid in freeing up time, in taking those to-do lists and, and taking them at least out of our head to allow us to be in the moment and then allowing us to come back to them? I think there's great promise in technology. I, I just, I also think just like changing gender roles, we're really on the cutting edge, sort of mm-hmm. the bleeding edge of change. And right now we're not quite sure how to use technology. And so it feels like it's using us. You know, you think of all of the information that's coming at you all the time. And, you know, just keeping up with your Twitter feed mm-hmm. would, would take days and days and days. So there's this kind of constant assault. And you have to always decide, well, what's most important in this moment? And, then, you know, again, the working memory can only hold seven things in it at any one period of time. So it does feel, you know, kind of this uh, all that everything all at once all the time. But I do feel like what technology can give us in terms of freedom to work 
you know, when and where and how uh, is best where we can be most productive and creative. I think that there are wonderful advances with technology. And so it's really a matter of kind of navigating our way through to figure out how to adapt to it. The other area that you spend a lot of time talking about is the role of public policy in all of this, the degree to which that public policy has adjusted or not really adjusted since the 70s to the realities that we're talking about. You know, I have to tell you, when I first started working on this book, this was sort of an accidental book, um, uh, I, I was so busy being, you know, trying to work and uh, trying to raise my family and trying to meet all of these these ideals of society, the ideal worker that comes in early and leaves late, the ideal mother that spends all of her time with her children, you know, trying to live two or three lives at once, that I wasn't even aware of sort of the, the larger policy implications. But once I started looking at it and then comparing the United States to what's happening in other countries around the world, in the 1970s, when, when women and mothers really entered the workforce in mass, uh, that happened. It was a global phenomenon for different reasons in different countries, and different countries responded to it. And, and many of them realized, well, we're going to have working families. We need to have supports for them. But this country, we went the opposite direction. Um, and we're still, if you look at uh, social surveys, there's a great ambivalence out there about whether mothers should work. And I think that that ambivalence that we're not really sure what we think mothers should do, has kept us from really having an honest conversation about how you would help and support working families. So we only have a few states that had, have paid parental leave, while other countries have up to a year where mothers and fathers have paid parental leave. We have the Family Medical Leave Act, but that's unpaid for 12 weeks, and anyone can, can avail themselves of it, which is a good thing, but most people take it to take care of themselves. I think people don't understand it's really not a maternity or paternity policy. It's really a taking care of yourself and sickness policy. We have no vacation policy. Uh, other countries have uh, at least 30 days uh, mandated vacation policy. We've left a lot up to uh, corporations and companies, and some uh, are amazing, and they have great policies that support their workers, and others really do nothing. The Family Medical Leave Act still doesn't cover about 40% of the workforce. Talk a little bit about what really changed in the 70s with really the polarization, the political nature of how we deal, particularly with women in the workplace, and this odd conversation that you had with Pat Buchanan. <laughs> right. Well, again, I was trying to understand how is it that we can be such a, a rich, advanced uh, economy where we can have so many smart people, you know, and granted we have people from all sorts of, uh, you know, different political persuasions, but how is it, how did we get to the point where we really have no supports for families and we actually make it more difficult for families to try to juggle work and home? How did we get here? And at, uh, in, in doing the research, I swung all the way back to that moment in the 1970s. There had been, uh, again, women were just entering the work, workplace, mothers were entering it in mass. And there was this moment, uh, there were polls that were taken where people recognized, well, if you have working families, you really should have child care to help families uh, make sure that they have good quality child care for their kids. And so, uh, and there was, a, there was widespread support that the government should help families do that because unlike college, you don't have 18 years to save for child care and you know, child care is very expensive. Uh, what was amazing is, uh, so there was a bill that passed both House and Senate with wide bi bipartisan support saying, yes, let's support our working families. We'll have uh, high-quality, uh, affordable, easily accessible child care 
available to everyone. And Pat Buchanan was working in the White House at the time, and he was sort of the beginning of the rise of the right, the right of the Republican Party. And he had been to the Soviet Union. And uh, if you recall, in the 70s, this was the height of the Cold War. There were great fears of uh, communism and Sovietization. Uh, and he'd seen young children in these young pioneer camps and was terrified that child care meant that we would be raising these sort of communist factory-raised robot children, and we would be getting away from, uh, you know, what he see, saw as this sort of sacred mother-father kind of family structure. And so he went to Nixon, made the case, had a lot of conservatives behind him at the moment who, who felt the same way. Uh, Nixon had just gone to China and was facing a conservative challenge in the primary and being very worried about his own political future. He capitulated to the right. He vetoed the bill. And when I spoke with Pat Buchanan, he said very proudly that they not only killed the bill, but they killed the idea of child care for all families. And that's true. And that really I found shocking, that that one act could have reverberated for so many decades later. And when one looks at that, one wonders how much of it really had to do with what Buchanan states as the purpose, this idea of, of being worried about it being too much like the Soviet Union, and how much was really meant as a perpetuation of patriarchy and a way to keep women out of the workplace at a time when that wouldn't have been too difficult a notion to imagine? Well, that's a very good question, and I, I, uh, there's been a lot that's been, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of people who would have that, that view, that that was, uh, you know, sort of a backlash to, to feminism or a backlash to women mm-hmm. uh, coming into the workplace or competing with men. There were pressures from all sorts of different places, uh, others that didn't want women in the workplace because they were worried that they would take jobs or pull wages down. But, you know, what I find most interesting when when he was saying that the reason that he wanted to do it, and he'll say that the, you know his stated reason was to preserve the family. Well, on the flip side of that, I also spent time with Pat Schroeder, mm-hmm. who was a Democrat from Colorado, was sworn in with her two little children hand in hand, and she had a very different view of what the what the government should do, what workplaces should do to support families, to have flexible work, to have policies that would enable parents to juggle work and 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 home. And what struck me about both of them is really their vision was largely the same. They wanted to preserve sacred time for family so that you would have that moment where you could come together as a family and breathe and not feel like you were rushing around or flying to pay bills and always scrambling. And I think what I find profoundly sad is because we've, we've spent so much time shouting at each other um, and, and not really talking about what's really on the table, We've really failed to preserve that sacred time for families at all. The other thing that has played into all of this are media images, whether it's in television or film or wherever it may be. And those media images, in many cases, created sets of expectations for both men and women, women in particular, that have been really counterproductive in in the context of what we're talking about. Oh, man. Yes, you're talking about how we have to mother as if we're Donna Reed and, uh, you know, and always home with cake and pie at three. We have to work as if we're, you know, Bill Gates and dedicated fully to the job. And by the way, we have to look like Jennifer Aniston, right? <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> Deborah Barr, who's written a wonderful book, uh, the president of Barnard calls right. it the triple whammy. So, yes. <laughs> Yeah, the expectations are really out of line, really, really out of line. And I think that's part of where some of the pressure comes from. 
uh, when I've talked with the sociologists who study these images, but also our ideals, these kind of the notion of the ideal worker or the ideal mother, they'll say that particularly when it comes to women, the notion of what the ideal mother should be and where we are, the gap has never been greater. The pressure on mothers has never been greater to be something that really no human can be. And of course, the, it's had this impact in terms, and you spend a lot of time talking about your own relationship with your husband, this impact that it's had within families, within marriages, in trying to navigate this new landscape. Well, you know, if somebody said uh, that my book, uh, I do, I write about our personal story, warts and all. Mm -hmm. I use myself as a flawed narrator character because I, I, I really wanted to understand. At first, I felt so alone that I was sort of alone in my inadequacy and overwhelm. And what's, what, what surprised me is the more I talked to people and the more I reported and researched, the more universal I found this. And then that's what made me want to pursue this as a book, to try to understand in a larger sense What's fueling this? Why are we all feeling this? And I have to be very honest. I fell completely prey to, uh, we fell into very traditional gender roles without ever meaning to. And so I fell prey to those images. I felt like I, I should be the one to stay home if the kids were sick. I should be the one to flex my schedule or go part-time. I should be the one to take them to the dentist and the doctor. And I never expected my husband to do that, even though we had set out initially saying that we would have an equal marriage. Well, you can't very well have an equal marriage if one of you is doing all of the child care work. So it took, us, uh, it took us a long time to kind of try to right that ship. We had gotten really, really out of whack. But part of that is that so much of it is hardwired into us in terms of these expectations about gender roles. As you say, you and your husband had talked about much greater levels of equality until the kids came along, and then you just fell into those traditional roles. Well, that's what I find so interesting, and we're not the only ones. Believe me, if we were the only ones, I'd feel a whole lot worse. <laughs> but I, in, in doing all of the research, I really looked at time use data and social science around the world, and even in, in you know, quote-unquote, enlightened countries like in Scandinavia, what they're finding is when that first child comes, it's really a critical moment in any relationship because that's when all of those expectations and assumptions and all of that unconscious bias that we may not even recognize that we have, that's when all of that just kicks into gear and you become sort of more reactive so, so what, what I'm really, uh, what I was really struck by and what I'm really advocating is uh, in the countries where fathers take solo parental leave, you know, by themselves, with the baby, on their own, trying to figure it out, what they found is that three years later, those relationships are much more equal. They have a much fairer division of labor at both work and at home. And it's really those first few months that are so critical. And and the unfortunate thing is, you know, we've got a there's a, a a case now pending before the EEOC with a father who had wanted to take the same amount of time for parental leave that mothers get, and his company said no. In our country, it's so hard for mothers to even get maternity leave. Um, it's hard for them to get it paid, and it's hard for it to last for more than you know six weeks to eight weeks, uh, sometimes twelve if you're lucky. And now to say, you know, for fathers to take leave is unheard of in some places. And when our children were born, my husband felt that his job would be in jeopardy if he took parental leave. 
And I find that really sad. Uh, you know, to have those, you know, we say we're a country of family values. How can we deny families this critical time to bond and come together and figure them, figure their, their relationships out as a, as a family, as this new entity? In that respect, how much of the responsibility for trying to turn this ship around, how much is, is within the public policy realm, and how much really is in the hands of, of business and the private sector? Well, again, there are a lot of companies doing amazing and great mm-hmm. things, and I don't, I, I don't want to paint them all with one brush. But at the same time, there's an awful lot of variation. They're all over the map. You know, and that would certainly argue to at least have the conversation. You know, we're not Denmark. We're not Scandinavia. We are this large, diverse country. We have, you know, uh, vast differences in you know, regions and you know, uh, political views and economic status. But I think we owe it to ourselves to at least begin to have the conversation that we stopped in the 1970s. What does it look like for the United States to support its working families? Uh, I think that it's critical that we have those conversations. I don't know what it would look like, uh, you know, but we're not even talking about it, and, and that's wrong. The other overlay to all of this is the way we are now experiencing generational shift, and we have more millennials coming into the workplace with a different set of views, boomers starting to age out of the workplace, and then boomers having to take care of aging parents. Mm-hmm. Yes, the the stresses are becoming so much more intense because we're living longer, and now so many more of us are going to be caring for not just young children, but you're right, the the parents on the other end. But you raise some some really what I consider potentially very hopeful things, and they <laughs> and one is the millennials. Um, all of the surveys show that both men and women see themselves as ambitious. And they see that uh, that their role in the public sphere and and work is important to both of them, and yet both also value time for themselves, for their lives, and for family. Uh, and you know, you see a lot of millennials that you, they sort of are um, people sort of dismiss them as like, oh, they're not as hardworking. Well, they may be, but they're working in a Starbucks or they're working in a coffee shop. They're working in a different way. And they're showing us, they're showing us all how productive and creative you can be when you work in a different way, when you work in a way that sort of suits you and your own sort of work style. So I think that we have a lot to learn from millennials that I find very hopeful. On the flip side, you've got baby boomers who've been working the 60, 70, 80, 90 hour weeks and they're, they're pooped, they're tired, and they don't want to keep working that way. And so you're beginning to see people set up kind of flex work or part-time work or, or continuing to keep their hand in but working in a different way and, and showing that, they, that that's possible. Technology is also helping along that way. Uh, for instance, um, during Hurricane Sandy uh, in New York, I had a number of friends say their uh, workplaces always wanted them to be in the office. They wanted them to have that face time. And during the hurricane, it was impossible and they were able to show their very uh, kind of rigid and recalcitrant bosses how productive they could be even when they weren't sitting at a desk where the manager could see them. So there are these little cracks in the cracks happening here and there that, that could add up to very positive change. And I think the last thing, which is sort of sad but also potentially hopeful, fathers are beginning to feel as much or more strain from the work-life conflict than mothers are. It's because they're trying to be more involved at home. 
Um, they're trying to be more than just the helper dad or the fun parent, and they're beginning to feel that same strain that mothers felt, say, 30 years ago, trying to live those two lives at once. And I think now that you've got men and women wanting full lives, you've got mothers and fathers, uh, you know, you've got more of the constituency that you would need for, to kind of stand up and say, you know, no more. Let's work, let's work smart, let's do excellent work, but let's not kill ourselves doing it and let's not sacrifice our families at the, let's not make them, uh, you know, at the expense of our families. Which really brings us back around to where we started, that the changes that created this environment happen gradually and over a long period of time, and there's no reason to assume that to the extent that we're moving in the right direction, the changes that are going to move us out of this will also take time and, and need to be gradual. Well, and that's why I want to come back around to that one point that I made. So so one of the things that I discovered in my book is you have to be aware of these larger forces so that you can understand how you're reacting to them and choose whether that's how you really want to be in this world. You know, understand that those are the forces pressing you, but make your own choices about what's important to you. And then when I talked about the stress shrinking our brains, there's wonderful research that's coming out of Harvard. Neuroscientists are putting people uh, through mindfulness training and then taking functional images of their brain, and they're finding that in as little as 20 minutes a day of just being mindful, which is nothing more than just being fully aware of your surroundings and how you're feeling in the moment, or meditating, or taking a walk, or yoga, slowing down for 20 minutes a day, that's enough for your brain to expand. And I find that really hopeful because you're right, there are big changes that that need to happen, but that will take time. So what can I do right here, right now in my own life to try to make it a good life? Bridget Schulte, the book is Overwhelmed, Work, Love, and Play When No One Has the Time. Bridget, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 